Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. Today we are interviewing Father Robert Spitzer, SJPhD. He's founder and president of the Spitzer Center, a scholar, teacher, author, seasoned leader. Father Spitzer is a preeminently excellent theologian and philosopher. His other fields of expertise, however, include management, science, finance, ethics, and physics. Born in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1952, Father Spitzer entered the Society of Jesus in 1974, was ordained a priest on June 11, 1983, and took final vows on April 4, 1992. Through the Spitzer Center, he hopes to bring knowledge and decades of experience to bear on the needs of the Church, with the goal of helping Catholic organizations to grow in wisdom, faith, effectiveness, and zeal for God's work. Father Spitzer has been instrumental in shaping the vision and curricula of the Center. His live speaking engagements are reserved for diocesan clergy retreats and convocations, major diocesan events and associations of Catholic educators and physicians, Formerly the president of Gonzaga University for 11 years, Father Spitzer significantly increased the programs and curricula in faith, ethics, service, and leadership. He led the efforts to build 20 new facilities, increased the student population by 75%, and raised more than $200 million for scholarship and capital projects. I was vice president for mission during a good portion of Father Spitzer's years, and I attest to his incredible leadership at Gonzaga. Father Spitzer has written five books on such diverse topics as practical spirituality, faith and physics, philosophy, pro-life apologetics, leadership and organizational development. His scholarly articles have appeared in various business philosophy and scientific journals. He has produced seven television series for EWTN. Healing the Culture, The Spirit of Catholic Leadership, Suffering and the Love of God, Finding God Through Faith and Reason, Five Pillars of the Spiritual Life, and Jesus, Emmanuel, and the Heavens Proclaim the Glory of God. In addition to the Spitzer Center for Visionary Leadership, Father Spitzer has founded six other institutes. Lastly, Father Spitzer joined the Sacred Story Institute Board in 2018, Father Spitzer and I, Father Watson, have been friends and collaborated extensively over the years, first at Georgetown University on retreat programs that I started, and next at Gonzaga University, where I became the first vice president for mission during Father Spitzer's second year of presidency. In part one of a two-part interview with Father Spitzer, this first part looks at his life in Hawaii, his grandparents emigrating there what his parents did, what his siblings did, his early aspirations in high school. We follow him as a young undergraduate to Gonzaga University, where he had ambitions to eventually take over his father's law firm and his business. But there is a gradual process that's going on in his heart as he gets more deeply into the study of the existence of God. It's a very, very powerful story that I think you will be very, very impressed with how it changed him, how it reoriented his future career ambitions, and we finally end up with his entrance to the Society of Jesus in 1974. So without further ado, part one 
of our interview with Jesuit Father Robert Spitzer, S.J. Well, Father Bob Spitzer, my good friend of 46 years, I'm very happy to have you on Secretary Institute Jesuit podcast. And I always like to invite my guests to do an opening prayer for those who will be listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all your blessings to us, especially the blessing of our call to the priesthood, our blessing too of the uh, service in the church, and especially in the Society of Jesus. Ask you, Lord, to bless uh, all of those um, who are serving in the church in these very strange uh, days, uh, challenging days, uh, especially our family members and those who work with and for us. We ask you too, Lord, that uh, you send your Holy Spirit down upon Father Watson and myself this day so that everything we do will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Wonderful way to begin. Thank you so much. It's great being with you, Bobby. We've been friends for 46 years, and I wanted to start off this first part of this podcast interview with you, giving people a vision of things that they might not know about you in terms of seeing you, you know, dozens and dozens of times on EWTN and many other venues, but just to kind of about your, your growing up in Hawaii and about your parents. So you were born in Hawaii. Tell mm-hmm. me how your family got to Hawaii. <laughs> Well, uh, my grandmother's, uh, well, my mother and my uh, uh, my mother's side of the family, the Van Ort side of the family, uh, Granddaddy Van Ort, as we called him, was the chief naval architect of the Pacific with headquarters at Pearl Harbor and was uh, responsible for much of the design of the harbor before the bombing and then, of course, after the bombing when there was uh, substantial damage and reconstruction that had to be done. Uh, He stayed on uh, in Hawaii after the war was over and kept working with the Navy for quite some time. And as a matter of fact, uh, he then shifted his attention to designing churches, um, Catholic churches uh, all over Hawaii. And so many of the the older Catholic churches in Hawaii were designed by him as well as uh, the, the military installations. So he had a rather you know, broad reach. It's amazing. It's, uh, How did a Dutch, uh, a Dutch engineer architect get to uh, Hawaii? He basically <laughs> got, he, he looks at, you know, he was living in the Hague at the time. Uh-huh. And he's, uh, he's looking in this, uh, I guess it was like an architectural journal of some sort. And he sees an ad to come and build a harbor in this little known place, you know, Hawaii. So he takes out his atlas, and he's looking at this little dot in the ocean there. And he, thought, he thinks, you know, this could be really interesting. So, of course, uh, then, uh, uh, you know, when he finds out that it's not only a major military installation, and he was basically a harbor builder. I mean, he, uh, the Dutch are definitely sea-oriented people. And um, he basically... Uh, said uh, he had to get a clearance that, that took him about three years. So my mother was born in Los Angeles while he was still awaiting uh, getting his uh, military clearance. And ultimately, uh, when he got a top security clearance, he went off to Honolulu. And um, and the rest, as they say, is history on my mom's side. 
my dad's side, they were um, businessmen, um, and uh, his father uh, was Arthur Spitzer, another Arthur Spitzer. Nice. Uh, and, um, he and his two brothers started some businesses. They they really needed a lot of funding, and they decided to flip a coin one day. And this is the truth: heads was Hawaii, and tails was Alaska, the two lands of opportunity. And as the grandkids all said, thank. Goodness, it came up heads. <laughs> we, so uh, anyway, uh, that's how they wound up there, and they did uh, very, very well. They started a, a lot of businesses there, and uh, really they got into uh, good contracts with the Chinese uh, over there, and uh, in land development and uh, property purchases, and even uh, various businesses ranging from hotels to shoe stores and real estate, very much so. My grandfather's expression uh, was, uh, I shoot an arrow in the air. Where it lands, I'll buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of did well, of course. You know, Hawaii, I mean, the the land values went up uh, considerably. (laughs) So your mom was a Van Ort. She was a Van Ort and a very good Catholic, daily communicant, pious Catholic. Wow. And I very much learned from her and very much saw her piety and her a prayer life, which was so d- devoted. And she really seriously looked after our education. We did not go to a Catholic school. Uh, we went to a, a Protestant one, a Congregationalist one called Punahou. But we definitely, uh, we got to the catechism classes every Saturday, and uh, which I loved. Uh-huh. And, you know, she got us to church, you know, in the early hours of the morning to say, to serve Mass for, you know, uh, Father McCray and Father Mathis, all the married old priests. Nice. <clears throat> that good old Sacred Heart Church on Wilder Avenue. Nice. And so um, uh, I really just had a very deep Catholic upbringing, a very deep sense of the presence of Christ. And that uh, came mostly from my mother. Uh, my father was a, 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 you know, a good Lutheran. He uh, practiced his faith on Sundays, and uh, what I learned from him was a respect for the law and uh, very much also a respect for uh, the intellectual and the educational life, how important that that really was. Was there a Jewish faith in your ancestry? Yes, yes, my grandfather and his two brothers. Is this, uh, this is the naval architect, grandfather? No, no, this is my father's father. Oh, your father's father. Uh, okay. And his would have been two uncles. They basically had very good business skills, and they were Jewish. They had difficulties getting loans and things of that nature. Uh, Even in the big city of Chicago in the Midwest, when they came over to the U.S., uh, it was difficult a little bit for them. So that's why they were looking for the two lands of opportunity. They, uh, They came over and to Hawaii and Lo and behold, when they connected up with the Chinese, they were able to start a, a good number of businesses and, and did very well. Now, did the uh, the Jewish wisdom come from your grandfather through your father? Because you've told me some very funny little quips about things your dad told you that oh, I think yeah. people oh, would yeah. find no, funny. I think there is certainly <laughs> the, the Jewish wisdom comes through. Also, the practicality comes through. But yeah. my dad was also very much impressed by two wars. And uh, a lot of his practicality came from just being uh, in the Pacific during World War II and then uh, also being uh, reactivated in uh, Honolulu when the Korean War started. And I'm a Korean War baby. Uh, All that being said, I think those things did have a significant impact on him. And I think it really formed him 
with a lot of wisdom and a lot of humility, a tremendous respect for everybody. I mean, my dad, there wasn't a person he didn't respect. He was a very, a very accomplished rhetorical person, one of these Harvard lawyer types. He definitely had, you know, good skills in that regard and right. helped us to understand those skills as well. <laughs> and, uh, uh, also, uh, he had such a tremendous respect for people. I mean, you know, folks that would be street vendors, you know, and he, my dad would just buy a newspaper from these guys just to be nice, nice. you know, or buy flowers from the next guy, you know, just to be nice. And he always called them sir, you know, and there he wow. was and, and his, with his briefcase and his, his uh, thing. And he'd bow a little bit to these guys, if his right. little Filipino salesman, and go, how are you doing today, sir? <laughs> and of course, you know, these guys were just amazed at my father. But I think he learned that just being in Asia, being in the Philippines during the war. But just he had a wonderful humility and reserve. Uh, and respect for people, uh, even though, like I said, my dad had some IQ to spare. So all right. of that was impressed upon me. Okay. And so I, I learned that at the same time I was learning uh, my religion, my faith, my, my deep, deep spirituality from, uh, your, your from my mother, my wonderful mother, and uh, from her parents, too, my grandfather, nice. and or, my grandmother, Van Or. And, you know, he was a chief naval architect. He was a very bright guy, too, my grandfather, Van Or, but a really good, deep Catholic. You know, <laughs> when he was dying, you know, he was surrounded by all the family members there, and he was talking to the angels. You know, everybody was thinking, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh the angels, okay, very good, very good. You know, granddaddy, who are you talking to? To the angels, okay, very good. So, of course, uh, at one point he looks up and he goes, can I go now? And everybody goes, well, sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. Seriously. And seriously. It was like the angel said, well, why don't you just get permission, you know? Right, right. Why don't you ask your family? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and bingo, he was a pious, wonderful Brainiac grandfather. What was a great story. I never, I, angels. Yeah. I, I never heard that one. The, the, I, the one that you have told that I've repeated a thousand times about the three things your father told you that they could do for you. I don't know if you want to repeat that, but he must oh, have had a sense. Of, he must have had a sense of humor. <laughs> oh yeah, he, he did have a sense of humor, but uh, I'll leave that go for the time being. <laughs> uh, okay, very good, very good, very good. People will just wonder. I'll have to put yes. it up on our website somewhere. <laughs> And your mom, I would call your mom a Moulier Fortis, uh, Blanche, oh, Blanche Spitzer. She was quite the force of nature. Yeah, she was a very determined woman, very strong woman, and very kind of beautiful woman. I mean, when my mom walked into the room when I was being ordained a deacon in Rome, Everybody looked up and went, who's she? <laughs> she <laughs> Practically she, like she's royalty or something. You no, know, she's very point. elegant. She always dressed elegantly. She was a beautiful woman. Uh, yeah. Just, I was very happy to be able to spend that time with your family at the turn of the millennium in Honolulu. Uh, that yeah. was a great time. Wonderful family. Both of your parents are with the Lord. Yes, uh, but we know you have siblings. Tell me about some of your brothers and sisters and what they oh. do. What they're, Are they in Hawaii, in Hawaii still? Yeah, one, one is in Hawaii still. Um, okay. My brother, Alan. 
He's just retired. He was at Hawaii Chemical Corporation, and prior to that, he was at Control Data Corporation, which became Ceridian Corporation. You know, he was uh, high up in the management, and also uh, Alan's got a lot of what I would call computer geek and accounting sense. And uh, Nice. And he's made a, a very good, I mean, geek in the good sense of the word. Geek in a good sense, right. <laughs> And uh, he's uh, he did very well. He's now retired and uh, just enjoying himself. He loves scuba diving. He loves traveling, going all over the world, which he does. And he takes his wonderful kids, my, my nephew uh, Andy and my niece Michelle, uh, with him all the time. Now, he's the Hawaiian one. He could never part with Hawaii. And uh, he even gave up job promotions. Uh, so that Seriously? He really? To Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he wanted to stay in Hawaii at, at all costs. And uh, there's reason for that, but that was never my calling, but I could see his point of view. Sure. And then I had a brother, John, who worked with uh, John L. Scott uh, Realty. He was a vice president in the Portland area there. He did very well himself, and he's very much an extrovert. My brother, Alan, was more like me, a little bit of the math, the logic, the explanatory items. Uh, he was more of a a theoretical guy and uh, John, very, very practical guy, you know, and it always used to impress me. You know, I could be riding down the street and go, well, John, are we going north, south, east, or west? Well, I'm going northeast. How do you know this? You know what I mean? I, I would just always be in a state of shock, you know, but he did. He just had that great practical, geographically located sense. And, and you know, I look more like my little brother, you know, my okay. brother, John was called the Adonis. You know, he was the blonde hair, <laughs> green eyed, six foot three, sinewy, athletic build Dutchman, you know, right. and right. I, I took after my father's Jewish side, you know, a little right. bit, you right. know. And as, you have uh, to feel sorry for those beautiful people, though, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy for them. <laughs> uh, well, it is funny that some took after the Dutch and some took after the Jewish, but, uh, you know, we, we didn't, uh, the, the Jewish kids, we didn't get gypped in the brains department, though, you know, and, uh, we were cursed by the, the theoretical interest at all times. I shouldn't nice. say because we were very blessed by it. But As you were growing up, what were your career aspirations? Well, when I was at Punahou and then when I went to college at Gonzaga, which was arranged by my mother, you know, she wanted us to... We went to the Protestant high school. The deal she had made with my father was that we would obviously be going to the Catholic college. And my dad made sure that that occurred by literally saying he would pay for Catholic college, but not for anything else. We got the message. I visited some colleges uh, with my family and I just fell in love with Gonzaga and decided to go there. As I went there, uh, I was thoroughgoingly going to take over my father's law firm and businesses. And I think my father really wanted me to do that. He saw that I had a good business sense uh, in me. Uh, I always liked the businesses and I also loved the law. I remember you telling me years ago that uh, you used to get up very early in Honolulu to see the opening of the New York Stock Exchange uh, and that you made, made loans to your brothers at the age of when you were like 14 and 15 years old. <laughs> I was very, very interested in the stock market and wonderful, one of our, the managers of our shoe stores was a guy named David Lau. And he got me in with uh, a broker, Art Sheeta, um, over at Bayesh Incorporated. And so I got my start uh, looking at the long tape and the wide tape, 
uh, over at the stock market and basically uh, getting my introduction when I was about 16 years old. Art Sheeta took me under his wing and uh, that really uh, was a, a great introduction too. I loved the, the financial arena. David actually took me um, on a trip to New York as well. How old were you? I'm thinking I was 18. Okay. But I was very accustomed already to, uh, you know, the financial world. So, uh, oh, I want to see Wall Street uh, without question. Uh, and so uh, we spent a long time there uh, looking at the revered site. The revered <laughs> site, right. <laughs> but that, I mean, I did, I mean, I, I have to admit, I did have a utilitarian kind of financial interest in uh, making money, taking over my dad's businesses, would you say that it was what Ignatius power. would call riches, honor, and pride? <laughs> At the time, I, I didn't view any of that as evil. I just thought that was natural. Natural. And, <laughs> you, know, that you, you know, what do you do? You know, you get money, power, and pride. <laughs> Honors. Well, you know. <laughs> if, you were, if you were so analytic, you must have also had a very good sense for numbers and math as well. Yes, I did have a good uh, Math was always a favored subject. You know, I mean, even calculus, I loved it, and I loved st statistics. I was uh, I was pretty much I had a numbers nerd quality. It was not disdained in, in my neighborhood. I'm sure no girl could appreciate my, you know, the my interest in numbers uh, at the time. Probably was not a popular guy, right? Uh, um, you know, and I'm sure the nerdly characteristics. You know, I was always interested in theological questions, though. Too, you know, I truly was. I very much was looking for evidence of God. I, especially in my latter two years of high school, I had been reading Sartre's No Exit and uh, Albert Camus' L'Etranger and, you know, uh, The Stranger, and then was reading a variety of other works, uh, Elie Wiesel's Night, and these things had impacts on me. Amazing, uh, amazing. Negative impacts. and Deep negative impacts, right. Yeah, and I was trying to find a way, you know, is there any meaning to life, or are all these guys right, you know, is life absurd? So I'd go around, I'd say, uh, is there any evidence of God, you know, and people would go, well, right. that's a deep mystery or something. And right, right. Very unsatisfactory. Uh, luckily, one day, uh, this guy handed me a book called uh, The Question Box by Conway, and it turned out my mother had that book. Where were you when you got this book, Bob? Sacred Heart Church. Okay. Uh, somebody pointed it out to me. And, so and you were I, still, a, still a high school student at that time? Still a high school student. Okay. and. Just looking and looking for evidence, you know, and then I saw this little indication that there are these five proofs of the existence of God and Thomas Aquinas, but it didn't really explain it. It just sort of said, well, there's a first cause proof and there's this contingency of being proof or something. And I looked at that and I went, huh, maybe there is evidence of God, but that was about all I got. My mom actually had that book and that answered, you know, um, it's called the question box. It answered a lot. A lot of questions for me, but uh, getting to college and then having, you know, people, you know, tell me, well, are you familiar with these singularity proofs? And I just went, singularity proofs? I haven't so much as heard of a singularity proof. Well, you know, what's that? You know, and all of a sudden being able to see that perhaps, you know, all space-time curvature would have to inevitably, if there were, you know, uh, positive pressure in the universe, that was the dominant form pressure, I would inevitably have to have started at, a, well, almost a dimensionless point, maybe 10 to the minus 32 centimeters. Sure. 
And I let, was let, let me take you back just a few steps yeah. here. So you're at Gonzaga. You're a business major. Yes. And yeah. And and planning on still taking over your dad's law firm and businesses when you go yeah. back to Hawaii, while yeah. musing about the creation of the universe and the existence yeah. of God. Yeah. So you've told me a story years ago about walking down a classroom hall at uh -huh. Gonzaga University and yeah. overhearing a lecture. Can you recount that yes. in, in oh, terms yeah. of that waking up for you? Oh, yeah. I, of course, had not. I mean, I had seen the course metaphysics in some course descriptions, but I really had no idea what it was. And being a business major, I could just get out of it by taking professional ethics or business ethics. Sure. So I, you know, I, I just thought, well, I'll just go down the regular old road here. Pragmatic. And be pragmatic about it. Be right. pragmatic. <laughs> get her done, you know, as they say. So one day I'm going down the second floor hallway of the, at that time it was called the administration building. As I'm going past this classroom, I hear this guy talking about proofs for the existence of God. And I just, you know, I stop, <laughs> you know, and I'm just listening to this. And I thought, gosh, I'm going to just duck into the back of this classroom. So I did. You know, I zoomed on in like I belonged, you know, that a Kate was coming in late, you know, like some goofball student, and I'm just sitting there listening. And at the end of the class, I walked up to this professor, and I said, you can't prove the existence of God. And he goes, so yes, I can. I said, well, do it now, and let me critique it. And he goes, oh, no. I know very well you're not in this class. I don't even know who you are. But I'll tell you what. If you come into this class and enroll in it properly and sit through the whole thing, I'll prove the existence of God to you. He did. I did. And the rest is history. I mean, I... Were you a sophomore at the time? I think I was a sophomore when I heard him do this. I was a junior when I enrolled in the metaphysics class. Okay. So I, I waited a summer, but oh no, I had every intention of enrolling in metaphysics. And then I found out that Gonzaga had this wonderful policy where you could take all the audits you wanted for free. You paid for the first audit, and I believe after that, every other audit was free. You wouldn't get it on your record, but you right. could actually sit in on courses, as many as you wanted for free. Nice. Well, I wound up sitting in on Father Steckler's course, you know, and people said, you, you know, you ought to listen to this guy. He's a true intellectual. Yeah, he was a, he was a Jesuit in the Oregon province, Father Jerry Steckler, who has, yeah. I believe, passed uh, to the eternity. He did. Gods. Um, okay. Yes, he did. And uh, but had a vast influence on me and many other guys at Gonzaga. Yeah, really deep influence. And so but again, I just started sitting in on his classes and I just thought, I got to get to know this guy. He's. He's a smart one. And then, of course, uh, somebody said, well, you ought to take some more courses in Thomas Aquinas. And then another guy said, you, you ought to sit in on this course in John's Gospel. You know, so, of course, I was sitting in on everything I could get my hands on. And then, uh, you know, somebody told me, you know, you're taking the CPA review course right now. This is my senior year when I got up to the senior year. I was just piling it all in. And uh, so uh, I really was having a great old time. I don't believe you piled it all in, Bob. I just don't think you're that way from what I know of you. <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, definitely I was uh, piling it in. And so, well, it's, I, I don't want to get into the whole story of it, but I uh, was in a class called the Love Justice Dialectic uh, with uh, John Cox. And I was just falling in love 
with theology. I, I truly was. And it's reading these guys, you know, uh, too. I, I had John Cox for ethics, and I had been reading. And he, he was a lay professor. He was a lay professor, yeah. not a Jesuit. Okay. That's right. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, you know, I really was totally moved by Paul Ramsey and his logic of moral rules, and that that really affected me. But another book was Joseph Fletcher, Situation Ethics. I fell for it for about a, a full month and a half. I fell for mm-hmm. the whole teleological script without any rules. You know, just the greatest amount of neighbor welfare for the greatest number of people. Right. And then when I finished the first chapter of Paul Ramsey's book, Deeds and Rules in Christian Ethics, that was it. I just thought, what a fool I was. <laughs> Quote that fine but only for a month. Only lady. for a month. Yes. Only for a month. You're full on getting your CPA, you're a business major, yeah. you're loading on all these theology and philosophy courses. And working in an accounting firm at the same time. And working in an accounting firm. So when did the the tipping point come with regards to becoming a priest and a Jesuit? It, were, were you conscious in that time? Was it was oh, it thematic? Were you thinking absolutely? About? It was nagging me, absolutely nagging me. And so you know, I I was I wrote home. Actually, no, I think I called home to my mother, and I just said, you know, I really think you know maybe I should consider being a priest. She goes, well, why? And I just said, well because my religion is becoming the most important thing in my life. I know I love the law, I love business, I want money, but really the most important thing in my life is my religion and I'm just wondering, you know, about the priesthood. Uh, But I I can't do it because I, I just have to be married and I just couldn't live a life without kids. And I, I loved kids, I just loved mm-hmm. them. And I loved, you know, I, I like women. And, you know, I, you know, was dating two very nice girls. Uh, we're not dating them, but just uh, going out with them and acquaintances. Right. Acquaintances. And, right. and I, you know, I really was very taken by one of them in particular. And so uh, I just thought, I, I've got to be married. And my mom comes up with the solution, right? She says, you can be a lay deacon. Just <laughs> reading about this in Newsweek magazine or whatever it was. So I thought, oh my gosh. You know, but I thought, lay deacon, that doesn't make any sense. You know, so I was reading this article. Deacons are not lay people. They're they're actually clergy, but they're but, ordained, uh, right. But basically my, my mom had kind of mistaken it because I, you could be married as a deacon. So she right. said, All you gotta do is just make sure that you get married before you're a deacon, then you're gonna be fun. <laughs> so I just thought, Okay, I'm gonna do that. That'll satisfy my deep need to serve the Lord, to teach catechism to serve the church i could do all these things and my you know i knew by that time i had a speaking talent and so i thought okay i i could do that so that was one of the turning points you know and then one day i was in saint al's church saint al's for people who don't know is the big church on the campus of gonzaga university it's also a regular parish church with big big imposing spires and great traditional religious art and stained glass beautiful place yeah, absolutely. And so I, I was going to Mass there in the evening uh, on a weekday. And I, I had been going to daily Mass ever since my sophomore year. I, I had been won over to that. And um, that's another long story. But to make a long another long story short, I was looked at a book rack in the back of the church. And there was a book by a guy named Father Armstrong on the priesthood. It was a very traditional book with all kinds of traditional pictures of priests saying Mass. 
and I was riveted to it. I, I literally was riveted to it. And as I was looking at that book, I began to think, I can't be a deacon. You know, you know? <laughs> I mean, I just, you know, this thing was just gnawing away at me is the only way of putting it. And uh, I just thought, I, I just really should think about being a priest. I paid for that book. You know, I, I read it practically before I left the church, the whole thing. But nice. I wanted just to look at it, look at the picture. Now, you're a senior at this time? I'm a senior at this time. Okay. I'm working for this accounting firm. I was also teaching catechism, you know, to kids in the probably ninth grade. Like I said, I just got out of this love justice dialectic class, which I really was into, I mean, deeply into and thinking, man, my religion's the most important thing to me. Here's this priesthood book, you know. And so uh, I'm walking to work, you know, in my suit, you know, and trying to look good. Boom, there's this rainstorm. And I mean, it is a major, major rainstorm out of nowhere. So I'm walking down there. There's this little alleyway that went from the Gonzaga campus. It went down to the downtown area. You know, and it was kind of a shortcut to get to the accounting firm. And I was, you know, stuck in this alleyway. So I was running like the Dickens to get underneath this little shack where there was a uh, kind of galvanized steel roof. Mm -hmm. And the rain was just pouring down on this roof. It was like thunder hitting that roof. You know, the, the rain was so powerful, almost right. like a fire hydrant uh, release. And anyway, the, the long and short of it is this water's just pouring down in front of me. And for whatever reason, I looked up and I said, is this all about me being a priest or something? I mean, literally, I was talking, right. you know, I get this thought, okay, if this is all about me being a priest, then make the rain stop. And it did. <laughs> and it stopped so quickly. All I could hear was the water still pouring off the roof in front of me. But the pounding on the galvanized steel stopped. Amazing. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So I thought, well, should I go see Father O'Leary? And I knew because my friend Joe Hollander was also applying to the Society of Jesus. And so I knew he was the vocation director. So I thought, oh, man, I said that to God and the rain stopped. I, I better go see, you know, right, right. Right. Yeah. ask for another I, sign. I, I, I want another sign. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was intended to have a little skeptical side to me, but I, that one was pretty good. Plus, I was ready to be convinced. That's a story and, uh, I've never heard, Bob. So that's oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, yeah. And of course, I, I think I told you the catechism story that, you know, my sophomore year, I think it was, you know, and. One of my fine girls, uh, girlfriends, who I really, really did like, came up to me and said, you know, uh, how about teaching uh, catechism to some ninth graders? I said, you looking at me? I don't teach catechism. Yes, I'm, I'm a know business enough. guy. I'm a business guy. I'm a numbers guy. <laughs> exactly. You know, you got the wrong guy. She goes, great. Do nothing for anyone. Uh, for the rest of your life. I said, okay, okay, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'll teach one class. And, you know, I had just gotten those singularity theorems. So I thought, you know, she says, so, well, well, what are you going to teach them? I said, well, I've been learning uh, some stuff about, you know, space-time curvature as evidence for a creation of the universe. And she goes, you're going to teach them that? I said, yeah, I think they'd be interested. 
because they were ninth grade boys too, you know, skeptical, right. you know, typical ninth grade boys. So I thought, well, yeah, you know, let me teach, go do that. So I think I put a part of a, uh, of an equation or something on the board, and uh, these kids are coming in there looking at me like, is this the catechism class? Right. Who is this geek? Yeah. And I just said, yes, it is. Another customer. Have a seat. You know. And uh, you know these guys are. Yeah, we got the weirdest catechism teacher on the planet. <laughs> I could just tell they had branded me El Nerdo Delexo. But I didn't care. I, I just thought I, I'll intrigue them, you know. And I, well, uh, you might be wondering whether there's any evidence for God in the universe. And I think there there is. I said, uh, here, here's what space-time geometry showed. If there's, as I said, positive pressure in the universe. Uh, it, uh, and that's the overriding pressure in the universe. Space-time curvature will have to have, at some point in the finite past, have been some something akin to a dimensionless point, which means that prior to that uh, point, all of physical space and time and energy was absolutely nothing. Now, uh, you know, if physical time and space were nothing, well, nothing can't do anything, so the universe when it was nothing, couldn't have moved itself from nothing to something. So something else had to do it, and I'd call that a creator or, or God. I could see these kids literally taking their tablet. Uh, who's this guy, Friedman? You know, who's this guy? What's this evidence? I could tell right away. Yeah, nice. were being moved. And so then at the end of the class, the littlest guy comes zooming up to me afterward, but he, I think he was one of the smarter guys. He comes zooming up to me afterwards, and he's looking at me with these doleful eyes. And he goes, are you going to be our catechism teacher for the rest of the year? And these words escape my lips. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I had no such intention. I had promised this girl that I would do a class that kind of get my reputation back, you know, that I... So Jeremiah says, Yahweh seduced me, right? Yeah. Oh, no, it was the eyes of that kid. And I figured I got something to give to that kid. And it was just at a point, you know, with the metaphysics going on and, you know, in my junior year, especially when I could give them something even more than a physics proof. I could basically give them, you know, a sense of philosophy. Right. And so I kept doing it. And so I knew I had a teaching gift. I, I knew it. And, in fact, opportunities to go on television to debate artificial birth control at one point and the Spokane local television station. My, amazing. Yeah, some, you know, Father Stickler, I think, came up to me and said, well, do you want to debate this lady, some psychologist on TV? I said, sure. So they said, well, some puny undergraduate from Gonzaga is going to debate you. I didn't know what I was talking about. I had to read, read, read like the Dickens to figure right. out, you know, what's this humani vitae all about? And is there any kind of sense that I can make out of it to a psychologist? But it turned out okay. And Great. the switchboard at Gonzaga got a whole lot of comments about my performance. Nice. I thought, okay, maybe I got a gift for some of this stuff. But I knew by the time I was into my senior year, I, I had a feeling God was calling me. And then when the rain happened, sure. I went into old, old Erie. And uh, by the way, you know him very well, too, Father, Pat Father Patrick Boyle O'Leary, right? Patrick Boyle O'Leary, <laughs> uh, without the Irish accent. But he basically was one of the nicest people on planet Earth. He goes, well, now, how long have you been thinking about this? And I said, well, perhaps for a long time indirectly, but 
more or less directly for about two or three weeks or whatever it was, you know. Mm-hmm. And he starts almost cackling, you know, he's laughing. He goes, well, well, what do you know about the vow? So I said, well, you know, there's poverty and there's chastity and obedience. He goes, well, what do you know about them? I said, well, poverty is you be poor, chastity is you be chaste, and obedience is you be obedient. <laughs> he goes, anything more? I said, well, not right now. <laughs> i got to wait for the rain to start. <laughs> so I said, exactly. So he goes, well, he says, you better read some books on, on that. So he gave me some books on the vows, and then he gave me the autobiography of St. Ignatius. That was the clincher. I'm reading that autobiography, and I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, I like this guy. He gets things done, you know, and of course, I was kind of a get things done kind of a guy. So I, I really kind of liked his attitude. You he was know. a pragmatist, very pragmatic guy. Very practical, but goal oriented. And right. I didn't know what the modus was at that time, you know, the even sure. more and just going out to the limit. And I had no thoughts about that you know, really. But I would say that when he was doing all these things in the story that he was relating about himself in the autobiography, I felt that same passion of let's get things done for the kingdom of God. And so I, when I wrote my vocation story letter to, I believe it was Father Cliff Jones. I believe it was, right? Yeah. When I wrote that uh, letter, that was my whole letter. And it was the content of my vow letter, too you know, to build the kingdom of God. That was my call. And that's what I really felt was my call, that the Lord was somehow telling me, you're going to be a good builder type, you know, not just a good teacher, but you're going to be doing some things that'll help my kingdom. And I want you to do that. And I was deeply in love with God because of a couple of retreats. And that's the last two sections of the story is that uh, I had gone on a search retreat and this poor girl, Harvey Cornwall, another one of my deeply wonderful friends to this very day, Harlan Cornwall, she comes up and she goes, you know, Spencer, you, you ought to go on a search retreat. I looked at her and I said, uh, Harvey, I don't do search. I don't do that. <laughs> I said, a lot of emotion I hear on those things. And I, I, I just, you know, I just don't want, that's not me, you know. And she goes, really, Spitzer, you ought to do this. And you really ought to go on that retreat. If you don't go on that retreat, you're really missing out. I'm just going to tell you this right now. You just have to trust me. Why I trusted her, I do not know, except that I always found her a deeply authentic Catholic. And she had gone to the same school, the Sacred Heart School in, in Kaimaki, that my mother had gone to. Okay. And so I just always felt like, well, she had a sort of a similar piety, like my mother is almost, you know, so I, I trusted her. I, I don't know. I went on that search retreat. I watched that movie of Mother Teresa blew my circuits got those palancas something beautiful something was it called something beautiful for god that movie yeah it really blew my circuits i just sat there i could have watched it another 10 times mm-hmm. i was just absorbed by what this little nun was doing and i just thought to myself okay this is true sanctity this is believable this is real witness 
So everything I've been feeling on this retreat, and it, it is an emotional retreat, it is. Suddenly it was validated by this movie, which was on the last day of the retreat. And so that was the first instance. And then uh, a second instance was when Father Steckler, who I had now taken a couple of different classes from and really respected him tremendously, he was going to run a one-week Ignatian retreat, I think, over... No, I'm sorry, it was a weekend. It was four days or something over a long weekend. Uh, Ignatian retreat. I thought, you know, if Steckler's doing it, I'm, I'm going to do it. You know, I, by the way, I, I did call him Father Steckler. But Father Steckler, right. That, if he's doing that, I'm, I'm going to do that retreat. That was my first experience of deep spiritual consolation. Now, mm-hmm. I had been in other states of spiritual consolation the whole time God was calling me. But I had no idea what it was. Sure. And they were almost kind of like glimmers compared to this. Right. I mean, I went on one of the walks down to the trail going down to, I think it was the Little Spokane River or whatever it was. Right. I'm You're going correct. down on that trail, and I am in a deep state of consolation. I mean, I'm just like, whoa, man, where am I? So I'm coming back, and Father Stickler goes, how you doing? I said, never better. <laughs> never better. So I told him afterward what the whole experience was like. He goes, oh, that's spiritual consolation without previous cause. That might be a sign of a call. <laughs> and I thought, oh. So, I mean, God was, you know, he was kind of lining things up. You know, there was the diaconate followed by the booklet in the back of the church. There was the catechism class. There was the metaphysics class. There was the proof of God in, in physics. There was the definitely the, the two retreats. You know, it was all kind of mounting up. And, and uh, daily mass was woven into the whole thing. Okay. Uh, daily mass was absolutely critical for the transformation of my heart from the brute utilitarian to the, uh, what I would call, softer heart, but still partially brute utilitarian. I think it was my freshman year. I had started going to daily mass during Lent. There was a guy named Bert Martinez, and I ran into him. He goes, Spitzer, what are you going to do for Lent? And I said, well, I'm going to give up meat or something. He goes, no, not me. Uh, I'm going to go to mass every day during Lent. I thought, well, if Martinez can go to Mass every day during Lent, well, I, I can go to Mass every day during Lent. So I started going to daily Mass. And I'm not kidding. I got hooked. Good. And I got hooked so deeply, not just by the sacraments, but even by those homilies. I yearned to hear the Word of God, to hear the homilies, to participate in the sacraments. There was no way I was going to stop at Easter, you know, going sure. to Mass. And so all this stuff transformed me. I mean, God had me, I'd say, about seven or eight different ways. You know, the mass, the retreats, the catechism, teaching catechism, the the metaphysics and the intellectual approach to God, being enamored of Thomas Aquinas, and and just so many other little details. But the rain finally was just like the culminating moment of trying to run away from the priestly vocation in a way. You know, I'm supposed to go to law school. I'm supposed to take over my dad's law firm. I'm supposed to have kids. I won't be happy if I'm not married. i got to do this. And, of course, the whole time I'm getting this, religion is the most important thing in your life. Everything, you, your whole tilt is religion. And I'm coming out of that love justice dialectic class, and I'm just going... I love this stuff. I love God. I love theology. I'm, I'm just going down the pike going, oh, what am I going to do? 
and in the rain. And as they say, the rest is history. Father O'Leary put up with me and basically, I guess, recommended me for, uh, you know, the psychological exams and then recommended, you know, that I be interviewed by other people. And they ultimately accepted me, even though I was a bit of a, a rambunctious person. I had started a newspaper called Lagos with my two buddies, Wally Larson and Joe Columbus. And let's say they were was a rather conservative paper that probably annoyed a whole lot of people because would you maybe prefer to call it a clear thinkers paper instead a clear of conservative thinkers paper yeah okay. we, we, we called ourselves the clear thinkers society yeah 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 exactly and probably could have but god i think wanted me you know and uh, i'm pretty sure he did want me and he kind of paved the way even though i was not doing myself any favors sure uh, you know half the time so what was your experience? You had these consolation experience. God obviously drew you in. You were accepted. You arrive at the novitiate in Portland, Oregon. What well, were you thinking um, and feeling at the time, and how was your family reacting? Well, just before I entered, you know, when I got the acceptance letter, you know, because I had basically applied to several law schools, and, you know, because the acceptance letter came in late May, I uh, was forced to matriculate to some law schools with paying money you know, which I never parted with willingly. But uh, in any case, I did. And then I, I got that letter in the mailbox and I was just shaking. Hmm. You know, I just, because I, I really wanted to be in the Jesuits. By that time, I was full on convinced. And so law school would have been my definite second choice. Mm -hmm. So I was hoping I, you know, the letter was positive. And of course it was. And then I thought, okay, I got to call my dad. And um, I put it, nicely he was not in favor of it <laughs> i think from shock kind of hung up the phone uh, okay because, uh, he really didn't believe that i could not be happy if i were not married and his experience was he could not have been happy without my mother yeah and so he was trying his best to convince me that i had been brainwashed and it was a terrible mistake and i understand exactly what he was doing and it was purely out of love. I mean, my dad didn't have a single moment of malice in him for me at all, or, you know, disappointment, you know, because I wasn't, I wouldn't be taken over his law firm. It was all about protecting me from making the biggest mistake of my life. Mm -hmm. So he was against it, but my mother was my stalwart defender. Okay, that's and, nice. Uh, she basically came and said, you know, Art, you got to stop it. Right. And, uh, let him be. He'll figure it out on his own, whether he's supposed to be or not. And her reaction to me was, look, Bob, if you ever decide that you don't want to be in the Jesuits, you don't want to be a priest, you can always come back here and you always have a place with us. And that was her reaction. And that was a moment of sanity, you know, really. Sure. And I know she defended me because right. I had heard it from other sources and she had put it on the line. And Dad, he did calm down. But Father Moreland, God bless him, who was my novice master. Great, great man, great man. He was great. my novice master, too. He made a huge difference. 
And old Father Moreland, uh, my father came to town. It was my sister's graduation. She was a year behind me, and she went to University of Portland. My novitiate was in Portland, Oregon. You know, he came to town for the graduation and, of course, invited me out to dinner. But in those days, you know, novices were not allowed to go off the novitiate, go out of the novitiate to go to dinner and all. And so um, I asked Father Moreland if he wouldn't mind going in my stead and, you know, just to talk to my father. Well, Moreland was very skillful. And I, by the way, I always call him Father Moreland. But, Father Moreland. You know, he was very skillful and a very, very astute uh, intellect as well. Absolutely. And he impressed my father throughout the entire conversation. My dad was really warming up to him. And Gordon has just huge, vast sort of knowledge of this and that and the other thing. And he liked business. Of course, my dad liked and everything, and so he's chatting amiably away and, you know, talking about, you know, I was doing some accounting there at the at the novitiate, you know, and helping out. And at one point, my dad kind of looks up and goes, well, maybe his life won't be completely wasted after all. <laughs> it won't be a complete course, waste. Right. My mother was ecstatic, you know, because, huh? You know, like, what did you just say? You know, I mean, basically. Uh, and, of course, uh, she didn't really say it that way. But she, I could tell she was ecstatic because, of course, she, she tried to bring some gifts to Father Moreland the next day at Thanksgiving for, you know, his being able to kind of get my dad halfway over to the line there. But anyway, uh, you know, it, it was a divided reception. But my dad did come around very luckily before his death which happened one month before uh, my vows. Uh, but, uh, sad, right. Yeah, but he, he did, uh, he had a heart problem, which in those days could have been easy, I mean, uh, today could easily have been resolved with a stent. Sure. But they didn't have them. And they so, didn't have them, uh, right. And so uh, the long and the short of it was, though, I know in heaven right now he's very happy, and he sees that I can be happy without being yep. married. And he's probably rather pleased that I'm able to serve the Lord in some capacity. So all that being said, I walked into the novitiate. I had a very strong confirmation when I did my little, uh, you know, you did a kind of a weekend visit. They were moving up from a place called Sheridan, Oregon, to Portland at the time I made my weekend visit. So they were painting rooms and doing this and that and trying to build things. So I walk into the novitiate for my visit from college, and they put me into the paint room which smelled of turpentine and paint. The, the walls were painted purple. There was a cot there. They just didn't have any place really ready for visitors. So I was sleeping on this cot in this paint room with the turpentine, and it just reeked. And I was in a state of consolation again. And see, ordinarily, I would have been a real stick in the mud about the whole Right. But I could not be dissuaded that this was not the place for me. It was almost like God was going, don't worry about this nonsense. You're here now. You're at home. And that was what I thought. I'm at home. And this consolation was pervasive. So it was a very icy day. And, of course, my Father Moreland always liked to go out in these walks with these two dogs. So, of course, I went out for a walk with him with the two dogs, you know, and of course, to show my great coordination, you know, I, uh, <laughs> you I were a, quite there, an athlete, right? Quite an athlete. <laughs> so as I get out there to do my walk, it was very slippery, you know, and I was used to ice, you know, from Spokane, but I don't know what happened. Right within about five steps after walking outside, come blom, right on my rear end. 
And of course, I looked up and I just thought, oh, Lord, you know, you know, I felt like St. Teresa of Avila. This is the way you treat your friends. Right. You know, no right. wonder you have so few, you know, so I felt like this is over. You know, well, Moreland, he didn't care, you know, Father Moreland, just, right. just a lovely man. He just goes, here, I'll give you a hand. Come on. But he was an old farm boy, you know, with these right. big old right. hands. He right. just kind of lifts me back up, you know, and I, luckily I didn't fall for the whole rest of the walk, you know, very <laughs> careful. But anyway, uh, you know, again, I was in consolation even after this embarrassing fall, kind of looking like a klutz. So uh, I came away from that just thinking, I really think that, uh, that God wants me here, that I was at home. It didn't matter what happened. I mean, there was this guy named Brother Whittle, and, you know, he was painting stuff in the dining room. I come in, he goes, who are you? I said, well, I'm Bob Spitzer. I'm just visiting. He goes, good. He hands me a paintbrush. Right, right. Start painting. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's great. So, of course, I start painting, you know, and uh, but nothing faced. I was at home. I felt you were happy. happy. I was happy. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.